Be in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We are walking our way through this letter from Paul to the church of God in the Greek city called Corinth. And within this letter, we are in the middle of a significant section where Paul is encouraging the Corinthian believers to remain faithful. Remain faithful. Chapter 9 ended with an exhortation to finish the race well. Run the race of the Christian life in such a way as to win the prize. Do not be disqualified through sinful behavior. And to further the point, Paul enters into chapter 10 by using several Old Testament stories as illustrations. He says, remain strong. Don't be like them. Don't be like our Hebrew fathers. Finish the race well. They wandered in the desert and didn't finish their race. You stay the course. Run the race well so that you may enter into the promised land of heaven. And here, well done, my good and faithful servant. Before we jump in, let's read together 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all of them passed through the sea, and all of them were baptized into Moses, and in the cloud, and in the sea, and all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask tonight that you would be with us. That you would open our eyes to see the truth found in your word. That you would help us to see these examples from the Old Testament and they would be instructive for us. They would be warnings for us. They would be encouragements for us. They would be, with the gospel proclaimed therein, a soothing balm to our weary souls. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of review, I've said in previous sermons that this section of 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, could be divided into three parts, which we may remember with three E's. Experiences, 
examples and exhortations. Verses 1 through 5, we looked at the Old Testament experiences. These were the experiences from the Old Testament saints that Paul is using as illustrations of theological truth. That was the exodus passing through the sea. That was the cloud and the pillar of fire. That was drinking of water from the rock. And then in verses 6 through 11, we will see examples. Paul uses the stories of the Hebrew fathers, the Old Testament examples, by way of encouraging us to avoid particular sins. We've already looked at sinful desire. We've looked at idolatry, if you remember. We looked at the story of Aaron and the Hebrews making the golden calf and then bowing down to it. These were examples of sins that we need to avoid. And later, in verses 12 through 14, we'll see the final E, that's exhortations, to flee from sin and endure in righteousness. But before we get to that, let's pick up where we left off last time with verse 8. And we'll see the next example of a sin to avoid, and that is sexual immorality. Paul warns against the sin of sexual immorality. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Paul here condemns all types, all manner of sexual sin. And it's not insignificant that the condemnation of sexual sin comes on the heels of condemnation of idolatry in verse 7. And that's because in Scripture, sexual sin always seems to be downstream of idolatry of some kind. When you give up the worship of the true and living God, then the indulgence of fleshly appetites surely follows. We see such a connection made explicit in Romans chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. I can read it to you. But Romans 1, starting in verse 22 Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the idolatry. They're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. But what does God do? For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And so we see mankind choosing to worship creatures rather than the creator, and so God's act of judgment is not to crush them immediately. His act of judgment is to say, okay, have at it. And he releases his restraining hand and he lets mankind loose on all the sinful desires of their hearts. And the fruit of those desires is a depraved sexual activity. Idolatry leads to sexual deviancy. That's the pattern to see. In fact, that's the same pattern we see in the story that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 8 of chapter 10. What he references is in Numbers 25. If you'd like to turn there, you can go with me back in the Old Testament. 
Numbers chapter 25. Here in Numbers 25, we see God's people camping near the Moabites. Moab is one of the places where the Hebrews are tempted. Tempted not only to idolatry again, but also to the subsequent sin of sexual immorality. Numbers 25, starting in verse 1. And take a special note of the mingling of idolatry and sexual sin. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to, to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate, and they bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Sexual sin, enticement to it, and idolatry intimately tied together, just like they were tied together in the city of Corinth. If you remember, we've talked about the pagan temples there in the city of Corinth that employed hundreds of enticing cultic prostitutes to lure the men and the women into the worship of their pagan gods. But lest we think that such a sin is simply for the Old Testament, or simply for 2,000 years ago, we can think about the situation today. Probably the most vocal false god of our current cultural moment in America is the god of free sexual expression. The world wants us to worship at the temple of sensual pleasure. The world wants us to offer sacrifices of praise to the god of immediate gratification. The world wants us to indulge in the liturgy of hooking up with one another or downloading this or that or, or any other way to satisfy our unseemly impulses. Our desires get all out of order as we've discussed recently. And we long after the worship of physical pleasure instead of worshiping the true and living God. We take a good gift, human sexuality, and we try and turn that gift into the giver of life rather than turning to our giver of life and praising him for his good gifts. Whenever we lust after that which isn't ours to have, whenever we're discontent with the avenues of sexual expression available to us, whenever we're tempted by the, the Moabite women of our modern age or lured into false worship, we're no better than our Hebrew fathers in the desert. And what does God do with them? How does a holy God treat sexual impurity among his chosen people? Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Idolatry and sexual sin deserve death. The Bible is unequivocal about that. Sexual sin earns for the sinner a sentence of death, and it's not merely the physical expression of it. 
The root desire behind the sin is enough to condemn us. That's what Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Simply to look at another with lustful intent in your heart is to violate the law. Outside of Christ, whenever my lust pushes me to covet that which I'm not to have, I stand worthy of death. Whenever a heart longs after a man or a woman that hasn't been given to you, you've yoked yourself to Baal. And you're provoking God's holy wrath. And holy wrath is what comes next in the text. Look at verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came. So after this judgment that has come down, one of the men came and he brought a Midianite woman to his family. In the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's parading his sin in front of the whole nation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and he left the congregation and he took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. The man of Israel, whose name is not given, provoked a holy God. His unholy action of this sinful Hebrew man has provoked the wrath of a holy priest, Phineas. He gets up and he slays the sinner deserving death. Phineas knows that such blatant disregard of God's holy law is blasphemous idolatry. To use Paul's words, Phineas knew that a little leaven among God's people leavens the whole lump. And so he removes the leaven. And Phineas' actions here are meant to remind us of another priest, another holy priest, a priest who, when confronted with the sinful actions of an unrighteous people, rose and took action. Think about Jesus in John chapter 2. He walked into the temple, the place of God's holy worship, and he saw it had been filled with greedy men indulging their sinful desires at the expense of God's people. The Apostle John quotes from the Old Testament and attributes to Jesus the words, zeal for thy house consumes me. Jesus proceeds to flip over the tables and crack and drive them out with a whip. Like Phineas, Jesus is a holy priest who will not stand for God's people to follow their sinful desires and indulge in clear immorality. Our sin, whatever kind merits judgment, unholiness, especially of a sexual nature, impurity of our sexual desires and actions, provokes wrath. And that's where each of us stand, condemned outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, we are the brazen Hebrew man, parading our forbidden Midianite wife, of sexual immorality around in the sight of God Almighty. 
He sees every bit of our sexual sin, even the desires of our heart. And he sees it even more clearly than the Hebrew people saw that Midianite woman walking in front of them. Every time we're on our computer, we're looking up something on TV, we're scrolling, looking at things we shouldn't look at. Remember this Midianite woman and the man parading in front of the people. And you are just as exposed before God in that moment than they were. But what does God do for his people? God in Christ does the unthinkable. He doesn't merely show us mercy at the expense of justice. That is, he doesn't just turn a blind eye and overlook our sin. Nor does he show us justice at the expense of mercy and send a Phineas to drop us dead in that instant. The New Testament reveals the plan of God in a gloriously shocking way. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to be the holy priest. Jesus is the, 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 the later Phineas. He personally brings death to the sin that infects his people. But, and this is the unthinkable part, Jesus Christ is also the one killed for our sexual immorality. God's holy priest kills a man of sin, but in a shocking twist, Christ himself becomes the sinful man. Christ is the sinless holy priest. He goes to the cross to bear the sinfulness of his people. The zealous priest himself becomes the sacrifice. The Holy One Himself becomes the scapegoat so that the sinful people can be forgiven. The sexually immoral bride is washed clean and made into a faithful wife and all because a zealous priestly husband named Jesus Christ loved His bride with an immeasurable love. Zeal for my house consumes me indeed. A zeal of such depth that he would give his life for that house. That's the good news of the gospel. When you're tempted to indulge in sexual sin, remember the story of the, of the Hebrews here. Remember the zeal of Phineas and the, the judgment of death. We ought to be the ones stabbed with a spear. But instead, Christ took that spear in his side. He was stabbed that we might be forgiven and given life. He was the one who came and bore that death so that his people might be forgiven and made pure. Let that good news warm your heart. Trust in that Christ. And know that if you're toying with sexual sin right now, hear this warning. If you're outside of Christ, know that you stand Condemned, And the fate of that Hebrew man and the Midianite woman is but a small foretaste of what is yours to come. You stand as exposed as that Hebrew standing in the middle of the camp with the eyes of God fixed right on his heart. But also, like Adam, hiding in the bushes, God is calling to you. He's calling to you now. He is offering you a better way, a way of forgiveness, a way of acceptance, a way of cleansing, a way of holiness, a way of joy. 
joy that could never be found with sexual immorality. A way of purity, a way of escape, and all this comes from the hands of Jesus. Even the worst of sexual offenders can be forgiven and cleansed, and the gospel is the only way that we could be made clean. None is too far down the road of sin to be made clean. Trust in this Jesus, the Christ of the scriptures, and you too can be made pure by this zealous priest of holiness. And for all of us, let us renew our efforts to battle in the Lord's strength against these temptations towards sexual sin. There is nothing new under the sun. And the same lust that prevailed back in Moab is the same lust that can prevail today, but we have a God who is faithful, and he will help you endure, as we just read. Next, having seen examples against sinful desire, idolatry, and sexual immorality, back in 1 Corinthians 10, we see another pair of sins to be avoided. And those are the sins of putting God to the test and of grumbling. Putting God to the test and grumbling. Paul says in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these two sins, putting God, Christ to the test and grumbling, I'm going to put together, since they're so often joined in our hearts and in the texts of Scripture, testing God and grumbling or murmuring are often seen in the same passage. For example, Paul is here in verse 9 referencing a story from Numbers 21, if you'd like to go there. Numbers 21. In Numbers chapter 21, God's people are still wandering around in the desert. And they're sent by God to walk around Edom. They're having to travel, from their perspective, a less than ideal route. It's not a direct route. It seems like an unnecessary burden. And they felt like they were having to do it with fewer provisions than they would like. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. The text says that the people of God became Impatient, which is the fruit of a prideful heart. The heart that always says, I know best. I know what is best. I know it even better than God. I know where we should go. I know the route we should take. I know the best timing. I know what I deserve in the meantime. And when God doesn't listen to this stiff-necked people, they begin to complain. Where is the food? We're sick of this food that you've miraculously provided for us. I don't want any more of that. Why have you brought us here? What are you doing to me? Don't you know that we're suffering? Don't you know that I deserve better than this? 
and they murmur, and they grumble. And what is grumbling? Grumbling is giving audible expression to unwarranted dissatisfaction. Grumbling is the audible expression of unwarranted dissatisfaction. And in their grumbling, the people of God were putting God to the test. They were setting themselves up as the judge and putting God on the docket. They wanted to test God to see if he really was who he says he was. And they presumed that they would be the fit judge for the task. Have you ever felt that in your heart? When a trial comes? When a a burden is weighing upon you? That's when you most likely feel it. When the load is heavy, you're most tempted to buck. Why is this happening to me? Won't God hurry up and take this burden off of me? Haven't I carried it long enough? This isn't fair. I don't deserve this. God, what are you doing? Can't you see that I'm suffering? And if we're not careful, godly lament, which is found in Scripture, which is in the Psalms, can very subtly slide into grumbling and murmuring, both of which impugn the character of God, and they test him, they tempt him towards judgment or discipline. That's because grumbling is no slight sin. To grumble is to believe that God is not holy. To grumble is to give voice to the idea that God is not good, that he has done you wrong, that he owes you something, that he is not just. In short, grumbling is to treat God as if he were a devil and to say that God's works are no more righteous than Satan's. And that's high treason against our creator. Every time we complain about how unruly our children behave or every time we grumble about the the red light we're stuck at again or we whine about our condition or our finances or our jobs or our spouse, we're in effect saying that God is evil. He's not, in fact, good. That's what grumbling proclaims. And what does such treasonous slander merit for us? Well, it it merits death. To smear The character of our holy God is to incite holy and just wrath. That's what the Hebrews tasted in verse 6, the very next verse. The Lord sent fiery serpents among his people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Fiery snakes. There's a nightmare for you. A combination of two symbols in Scripture indicative of judgment and cursing slither into the camp and send many people to the grave. Souls swelled up with pride, overflowing with presumptuous slander against God, slander that earned them the slithering sentence of death. Outside of Christ, each of us earns the same. But notice what happens in the text next. God doesn't leave them without hope, nor is he unconcerned with the plight of his people. Verse 7, And the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned 
For we have spoken against the Lord and against you, Moses. Pray to the Lord that he take away the the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Moses makes a metal sculpture of a snake. The image of the curse itself from the garden. And he raises it up for everyone to see it. And when they just look on the image, they're healed. And it is to this exact story that Jesus links himself in John chapter 3. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as the sight of the cursed serpent saved a whole nation, so too does the sight of Christ lifted up on the cross, bearing the curse itself, save a nation of sinners. The cursed one lifted up purchases from condemnation an entire nation of condemned grumblers like me and you. But it's just but the sight of him that makes us clean, that cures us. Praise be to God that he's provided a way of eternal life. And all we have to do is look. Looking by faith is all that is needed to save us from the venom of sin. Gazing at him is all we must do to have the poison undone. Grumbling put us in the grave, stung by death itself, sent there by the bite of a fiery serpent, destined for an eternity in a fiery place called hell. But Christ has borne our judgment and removed our condemnation. No other prescription is needed. No other remedy can cure us. Look unto this Christ, the one raised up on the cross, who bore the curse for all who would believe in him. Trust in him. Trust in his provision and his forgiveness. And you too can be cured of the sure sentence of death. And when you find yourself tempted to grumble again, When you find yourself like the Hebrews wandering in the desert, grumbling about God's provision for you, remember this. If God did not spare his own son for you, but gave himself up for you, how will he not also give you all things needful for this life? That's Paul's logic. Romans 8.32, if God gave you the most precious thing, Jesus... Will he not also give you all the things that you need for your journey in the wilderness on the way to Canaan? God is good, so good that he gave his son up for you. And if he's that good, then his gifts to you in this life are also for your good. Your trials are not meant as a punishment, as if God is still kind of your enemy. They're meant for your purification. His burdens are not meant to crush you, but to bring you closer to him. Your valleys in life can do nothing of eternal significance to you. And they are but occasions for you to know better the Savior who has walked the valley of death ahead of you. Don't grumble against God's provision. Don't look back at the the vegetables in Egypt. Don't be like Lot's wife. Look to the one who was 
cursed and raised up in your place that you might be given eternal life. And if you have not yet trusted in this one raised, then know that the offer of eternal life is made to you as well. Your grumbling has earned you a sentence of death, but that can be replaced by a simple look at the one who was raised for the salvation of men. Trust in that Jesus, and you too can be purified of the poison of sin, cured of the cancer of eternal death, and instead given the remedy of forgiveness and of eternal life. Don't don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to work your way up to it. Just look. Gaze. Keep your eye on the Savior raised on the cross in the place of a sinful people, and you too will be saved. I started writing this sermon with the intent to finish through verse 13. That's not going to happen tonight. Part four next week. Tune in next time. But let me close with a final observation and an encouragement. One observation by way of application is to notice Paul's warning against murmuring or grumbling in verse 10. We've noted more than once, and it's plainly clear to anyone who reads the history of Israel that God's people are prone to to grumble. But I want us to also note that grumbling is a compounding sin. Grumbling is a compounding sin. The initial sin is that they grew impatient and they were quarreling with God. But it's compounded by their murmuring against God and against God's chosen leaders as well. Whenever a difficulty pressed upon them, when they met trials on the way to Canaan, They were very prone to confront their leaders to seek to usurp them, to have them removed and to return back to Egypt with leaders of their own choosing. Grumbling, tempted towards rebellion and and usurpation of the authorities that God had ordained over them. And I think a similar situation is happening in Corinth. They were murmuring against Paul and by extension Jesus and they were instead seeking to prop up the leaders of their choosing whether that was Peter or Apollos or the super apostles or whoever. And the men of their own choosing would let them indulge in their chosen idolatry, feasting with their favorite idol meat rather than sacrificing their preferences and bearing the reproach of their pagan neighbors. It's similar to Paul's warning elsewhere about the temptation towards setting up preachers of our own preference who will say things that our itching ears desire. We can put men up who will scratch us where we want to be scratched, who will indulge us where we want to indulge. And such conduct was very provoking to God, and it was likely to bring upon them swift destruction as it did for the Israelites. You can read in Numbers 14. The spies who came back from the promised land and gave a bad report led the congregation of Israel to grumble text says they died by plague all that to say i want us to to highlight that grumbling is a sin that is never content to stay alone it's a sin that greatly provokes god it it will often incite rebellion against whatever authorities are over us and even can grow to such a head as to produce outright revolt against god himself and his good ways 
And so let us heed Paul's warning and soberly battle against the temptations within us to grumble and complain when we don't get our way. That is but the first step of a potentially greater rebellion whose end is neither good nor pleasant. In closing, I want to leave us with the words of an old hymn by Horatio Palmer, simply entitled, Yield Not to Temptation, written about 180 years ago. As we battle against our temptations towards sin, hear his words, Yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward and dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus. He will carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you. Comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Christ. The one who was raised on the cross that we might be saved by a mere look in faith. Help us to always keep our eyes on this Christ and in doing so, finish the race well. I ask this in Christ's name, amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology together.